Well, good morning. Holy cow, I can't see any of you today. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. I want, um, I want to start by addressing the elephant in the room, um, because I can, I can see the looks on your faces now that I stepped out of the light, uh, and I know the question you're asking, and no, Tony did not get smaller and significantly less looking from last week <laughs> to this week. Uh, Tony uh, and his family are on vacation enjoying some, some time together right now, and so he called in the relief pitcher. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Gateway, and um, uh, because Tony is out of town, I get the privilege of sharing with you in uh, our current series, which is called uh, Messy. For the last few weeks, we've been kind of centering our time together on this command to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? And Tony started us off by reintroducing us to that, that command and reminding us that, it, that it, it started all the way back, all the way back when God rescued his people from Egypt, from slavery, and he made them a nation, and he told them, this is how I want you to live. He gave them the commandment all the way back then, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and thousands of years later, people are still talking about this commandment when Jesus is around. And last week, uh, Tony talked about a story where a man um, came up and asked him the obvious question, right, which is, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then who is my neighbor. And uh, Jesus shares a story of the Good Samaritan with him and uh, says, basically, look, what it means to love your neighbor is to love the one that's in front of you, right? That's, that's where we left off last week. And, and so we've talked about the idea of who, or what does that mean to, to love your neighbor, to love the one in front of you? The, the next natural question then is, how do I do that, right? How do I love my neighbor? And hopefully, my hope for you is that uh, by the time you leave today, you have some clarity on that question. Does that sound good? I hope so, because I don't have anything else prepared. Um, so you may or may not know this about me. It's not really a secret, uh, but I love college football. Absolutely love it. For as long as I can remember, fall Saturdays have been reserved. They've been my favorite time of the year, because they've been reserved for Michigan football, right? And sometimes that's really fun, and sometimes that's not so fun. Last night was fun. 10 out of 10 would do again. Go blue, all right? But I love it. The, 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 the bands, the, um, the cheerleaders, the, the traditions, the student sections, the stadiums, all of that stuff, it just, it captivates me. There's something different about college football, and I love that. The thing about college football is also it's the shortest season, right? Of all the major sports, it's the shortest season. So that means that every single week is that much important, so I try not to miss any, right? So since before I could drive, Saturdays in September and October and November have been reserved for the best reality TV there is, and that is, that is watching Michigan football. Now, what that means is that over the course of the last two decades, I have consumed a lot of, not food, don't judge, I have consumed a lot of commercials on Saturday mornings, right? A lot of commercials um, and a lot of wings, but mostly just a lot of commercials. And I tried to calculate how much time I spent watching <laughs> commercials over the last couple of years. It got really depressing, so I just stopped. Uh, but there are so many of them, to the point of it being pretty obnoxious, right? And advertising being the way it is, that means that I see a lot of the same ones over and over and over again, right? For cars, for food chains, for beer companies, for insurance companies, for financial institutions, over and over and over, right? And you can't tell me that advertising doesn't work a little bit. Because if it weren't for those commercials, there's not a chance that I would know about companies like Fidelity, or Northwestern Mutual, or Pacific Life, or Prudential, or all these other ones, the Hartford, Edward Jones, all these companies that are advertising during football. Most every Saturday, since I can remember, I have been inundated with commercials from these financial institutions seeking my patronage. And a healthy majority of them are retirement planning companies. And by now, I can pretty much give you the spiel, right? The idea is this. They want me to know, they want me to know, there's plenty of life left for you to live after you retire, right? 
And they want me to start thinking and dreaming about what that's going to look like. But, but they make it clear to me, you don't just luck your way into whatever that's going to be, right? You don't just kind of like back your way into achieving your goals or realizing your retirement dreams. You're going to need some help getting there. And that, dear customer, is where we come in. We would love to help you with that. Because you want to be able to live well, right? But that comes with a cost. A popular question years ago in those commercials was like, what's, what's your number, right? And the idea was this. Let's, let's think about what, what do you want to do when you retire? What level of comfort do you want to have? Do you want to travel? Do you have a bucket list? What sorts of things do you want to do? What do you want retirement to look like? And then let's think about what that's going to cost. That's your number. And we'll sit down and put a plan together to get you there. Because you want to live, right? You want to really live. And we, potential customer, we want you to live too, but it's going to cost you. And I think it's fair to say that most of us in this room have at least thought at some point what we, want, what we want our future to look like. Some of us are closer to that than others. Some of us are living in retirement right now. But to think about what, what do I want my life to look like when I'm 65, 75, 85? What, all this work that I spend all this time doing, what do I want it to amount to? What is it, what is it building toward, right? The dreaming part is easy. Bucket lists, thinking about where you'd love to go, thinking about what you'd love to do, that part's easy, right? It's that whole part in the middle. <laughs> the part where you have to save and plan, and sacrifice, and all of that, that's where it gets messy, right? Messy. Is it, is it worth it? Are my goals, is what I want to experience later in life, is any of that worth what it's going to cost me right now? And you know, people have been asking that question for a long time. A long time. Uh, we're going to read a story today uh, from Matthew, the former tax collector and disciple of Jesus, right? He tells this story uh, about a man who also had a choice, who had a choice about uh, deciding, are my goals worth what I want, right, what it's going to cost me right now. And all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story, so it's obviously something that was uh, significant enough that they all wanted to tell it, but we're going to be hanging out in Matthew's account today, and I'd encourage you, if you've got a Bible, if you have a phone, um, go ahead and open it up. Uh, it's going to be on the screen, but if you have a way to follow along yourself, I would encourage you to do that. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 today, and uh, at this point, Jesus has been traveling a lot. Uh, he's been talking with his disciples. He's been teaching, and he's in the middle of a conversation with his disciples, and this man approaches him. Uh, and asks him a question. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. It's on, this, uh, on the screen. A man, Luke calls him a ruler, so you might know the story as the rich young ruler, came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, what's this man after? Right? What's, his, what's his dream? What's his goal? He's after eternal life. He tells us right up front. And this is extremely important to the story, and I want to pause here for a moment. Because I think, especially for those of us who have grown up in a church setting, we bring so much baggage with us to the phrase eternal life. Like, that makes us think of all sorts of different things that we've been taught over the years. And, and the thing is, I want to make sure that we, we understand and we appreciate the significance of this man's question within its first century Jewish context, right? Because you see, the Jews at this point, they've been waiting for a very long time, centuries, for God to fulfill this promise that he gave them, that one day I'm going to send you a king from the line of David, right? I'm going to raise up this king, and he's going to once and for all reestablish the kingdom of Israel to power. And he's going to usher in this new era of peace and prosperity and shalom, a kingdom where Israel's enemies are going to be vanquished and Israel will prosper. And for centuries, the prophets have been talking about this king, and they've been waiting for this king, right? And Jesus has had this nasty habit of running around calling himself the son of man, right? And the thing is, that may not mean much to us, but the Son of Man was a direct reference to a passage in the book of Daniel that was all about that king who was coming, right? So people weren't missing what he was saying. When he called himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the guy that's coming, right? And all of that is in view here when this man walks up to him. 
because the man asks about eternal life. But, but if in a first century Jewish context, what he's really saying is, Jesus, I believe that you are that king that you say you are, and I want into your kingdom. I want in. And actually, as we're going to see in just a moment, Jesus is going to refer to it as the kingdom of heaven. So understand what the man is asking. The man isn't asking about some 21st century kind of ethereal, there's this spiritual life after physical death, and I want that. That's not what he's asking. What he's asking is, I want a place in the promised kingdom that has finally come. And so Jesus says, um, Jesus says to him this, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man replies, which ones? Jesus says to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice here that Jesus picks kind of a smattering of the Ten Commandments. He picks five of them, and um, all of them are in direct reference to the way we're supposed to treat other people, right? In the Ten Commandments, there are some that relate to how we talk to God or how we relate to God. There are some about how we relate to ourselves, and there are some about how we relate to others. And Jesus picks all of the ones that have to do with how we interact with other people. And then, for good measure, he throws love your neighbor as yourself right on at the end. And the young man says, all these I've kept. All these I've kept. What do I still lack? And that's an interesting statement because the man clearly recognizes that he's still missing something, right? Jesus reads off these commandments, and mentally he's like, check, 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 and check, right? I got all those. I got all those. And so you can feel like his frustration and his excitement. It's clearly he wants, it's clearly he wants life in Jesus' kingdom. He wants to be a part of this kingdom. It's been his goal. It's been his dream. He's oriented his life around this very idea, right? Enough to be able to confidently say, yeah, I've kept all those. So, but you can also sense his frustration then when he's like, despite an entire life of working toward this goal, I still just know that there's something missing. There's something that's still clearly out of my grasp at this point. And you can feel his excitement as well because it's, it's, it's right there and he knows it. Jesus, he knows Jesus has the key. He knows Jesus has the answer. He's like, just tell me what I got to do because I'm ready. I've been building up to this entire, to this moment in my entire life. And so Jesus pushes him deeper and he tests his commitment to this idea of loving his neighbor. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrow, sorrowful, sad, for he had great possessions. Clearly, that wasn't the answer that he was looking for. And it's interesting to note that this is the only story in all of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the gospel accounts, this is the only time that Jesus gives somebody a direct invitation to follow him, and it's rejected. The only time. And so Jesus takes this moment, he, he takes this opportunity, he seizes on it to teach those around him. He continues this way, he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. You see, in ancient Near Eastern, Eastern cultures like, like that of the Jews, it was assumed that if you were blessed with a ton of wealth, that was a symbol that God was blessing you, right? That, that you had God's favor. And they had examples of this. You think about people like Abraham and people like Job who are a part of their history, people whose material wealth was, a direct, was given them directly because of 
their faith in God and their trust in God, right? And, and the people of, of that day, right, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the people that would have been considered closest to God were men of means. And so the idea was just very simple. If, if you're rich, it's, it's because you've done something right and God is blessing you. And so when they say, when he says that a rich, it's very difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, they're like, well, then we're, hope, we're hopeless, right? If the people that we see being blessed already, if they don't have a chance, then, then we're done for, right? So they ask Jesus about it. They say, then who can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus looks at them and he says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And we know that to be true because, for example, in Luke's account of this, in the very next chapter, we see the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a rich man. He was a rich man who wasn't seeking after the kingdom of God, but he had an encounter with Jesus, and his life was changed forever, and he became a follower of Jesus. He entered into the kingdom of God, so we know that's possible. We have stories like Joseph of Arimathea, the one who donated his tomb to Jesus. We have stories of people like Nicodemus, who came to him in the night and eventually became one of his followers, rich men of means who followed Jesus. So we know that it's possible. And the question then that it raises is, is there something deeper going on here? And I think there is. Is there something bigger than just rich guys and camels? Peter, true to form, like he always does, says the first thing that's on his mind, always. Peter says in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. He actually commends him and the disciples for their act of faith. He says, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones uh, and judge the tribes the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now I think it's natural for us to read this story as a call to give up wealth. And listen, I can't necessarily argue with that. That's exactly what Jesus asked the man to do. So if you sit here today and you hear the story, and the first thing you think is, Jesus is calling me to give up what's mine, I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't do that. You should. But I also think that there's something deeper going on here. And if we peel the layers back just a little bit, it'll become clear what that is. The story began with a man actively seeking Jesus to ask him how he can have eternal life. And as I mentioned earlier, What that also means is this idea of being a part of the never-ending kingdom. And it's a worthy goal, to be sure. His intentions were pure. Uh, It seems like he's been orienting his life around this idea, so he's not looking for some sort of shortcut. The problem for the man is that he fundamentally misunderstands the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. The rich man wants a place in Jesus' kingdom, and Jesus is like, well, then I want you to know what that means. And so Jesus attempts to kind of correct this misunderstanding. And, and just like Jesus, he doesn't just come right out and say it. He gives the man a choice to lead him there, right? Now, notice, Jesus does not say, just believe that I'm the Messiah and you're good, right? In fact, Jesus rarely does that. He, uh, he almost always tells people to do something. And, and this story is no different. And if you've grown up in church, passages like this kind of make us uncomfortable sometimes, right? Because, because it kind of pushes and creates tension with this idea that there's nothing that we have to do to be saved. That's all something that Jesus does for us, and we just accept it, right? And, and, and so when Jesus says things like this, it's like, man, I, I don't know about that. But the reality is these are the words of Jesus, right? And so it's important that we wrestle with them honestly. We need to understand um, 
that for Jesus, the expectation is if you truly trust him, then you're going to be willing to do what he asks of you because aligning yourself with Jesus means trusting his ideals to the point of action. And the invitation is rarely just to believe, it is almost always to follow. And that implies action on our part. What Jesus is trying to get the man to understand here, uh, when he tells him to give, give away everything he got, uh, you know, sell it all, give it away, come, follow me, is that the kingdom of heaven is built on a foundation of humble, self-sacrificing love. That's what his kingdom was all about. And that's what Jesus, uh, that's, that's what he's saying, that's what you're asking to opt into when you ask if you can be a part of this kingdom. You are saying, can I be a part of that kingdom? My kingdom isn't about honor and riches and power and wealth. It's about humility and sacrifice. Many who are first right now, Jesus says, are going to be last. And many who are the least of these right now are going to be lifted up and given honor in this kingdom. And so the real question behind Jesus' request to this man to go, sell it all, give it away, and come and follow me is whether or not the man can trust a kingdom that's built on a foundation of humility and sacrifice. Is that the kingdom you're looking for, sir? Do you trust that kind of foundation enough to sacrifice everything you have and jump in with two feet? Because if so, it's all right here for you. Everything you've been looking for is right here. Everything you've been dreaming of is right in front of you if you're willing to trust and follow me, right? And it makes me think, I think there's an image up on the screen. It makes me, kind of makes me think of this like Indiana Jones style quest, right? You got, you got this person who has been spending, who's spent their life trying to search for this thing, whatever this thing is. And in this case, uh, the search for the man, he's searching for eternal life, right? And he's dedicated his whole life to this, to finding the source of this. And in this moment, it's like he's, it's like he's, He's, he knows where it is. He's on the island, okay? And he knows exactly where he's going. He, he pulls the trees apart, and everything he wants is, is right there. He can see it. It's right there in front of him for the taking. But there's a problem, and that is that in between him and that thing, there's a canyon. And across that canyon is, strept, is stretched a, a bridge. It's made of rope and planks, right? And he looks at that, that bridge, and he's like, that thing's pretty rickety. Doesn't look very stable. Doesn't look very secure. I don't know that I can trust that. I don't think it's guaranteed to hold me up. The way is clear. The only thing standing between him and everything he wanted is this bridge, right? But that bridge is also the only thing that's standing between him and everything that he would consider ruin, right? Maybe a fall to his death. So he has a choice to make. Do I trust the bridge? Do I trust the way to everything that I want? Do I risk my safety and my security and step across and take hold of everything I've been searching for? Or do I cut my losses, content to survive, but to know that I'm never going to get what it is that I've been after? Is the cost of living, eternal living, worth it? And that's the, that's the decision man faced here, right? Jesus gives him the roadmap, he hands him the keys, says, here it is. Here's what you need to do. And once the man was face-to-face with that reality, the cost was just too high. Keeping a list of rules, that was fine, right? Yes, I can do all the commandments, not a problem, happy to do that, right? But sacrificing everything he had, that was a showstopper. Because wealth provided security, wealth provided a way for him to take care of himself, a backup plan. But the man completely misunderstood Jesus' kingdom. He didn't realize when he was asking what kind of a kingdom he was asking to enter, a kingdom literally built on love expressed through sacrifice. And once he understood that, that that was the foundation, he just wasn't sure that's one he could trust. He couldn't trust a kingdom founded on sacrifice. And so the story says, we read it, right? What did he do? He walked away sad. 
He chose not to follow, and he chose not to opt in to the kingdom of heaven. Given the choice of everything his soul cried for, the greater meaning, the thing for which he had been searching, or giving up what provided him security for now, he gave up the kingdom. His rejection, it wasn't just a choice to keep his wealth, it was a rejection of the very foundation on which the kingdom was built. Just like the bridge in the story, the man just didn't trust the way to what he wanted. He chose security over love, and he chose to settle rather than sacrifice. And I mean, I get it, right? And I think you do too. Like, it's not like what Jesus was asking was small, right? Not like it wasn't a pretty significant sacrifice he was asking of the man. But, but at the same time, nobody knew the cost of the kingdom like Jesus, right? Jesus' entire mission was sacrificial love. When I say that the kingdom was literally built on sacrificial love, that's not hyperbole. Read the story. Matthew lays it out just like a coronation ceremony, a Roman coronation ceremony. From the time that Jesus is, is betrayed to the time that he ends up on the cross, the whole thing is laid out like a coronation ceremony. The difference, though, is that the throne that he, was, that he, was, he ascended to, the throne that he was given, was Roman wood, and he didn't sit on it, right? And the crown that he was given wasn't, wasn't made of gold. It was made of thorns. His very mission... His very purpose was to give his life away so that others could have it. Just like he asked the man in the story to do. Take what's yours, give it away, sell it, give it away to people so that they can have it and come and follow me, right? He gave away what he had so that the poor in spirit could have what was his, a place in his kingdom and life forever, true life. He put his money where his mouth is. He invited the man to do the same. And he, he, he extends that same invitation to all of us, right? Jesus says in John 10, uh, 10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? New life, new life, true life. New life means a new way of living, a way of living that is contrary to what is normal and standard and average and easy. Normal life is selfish. You don't, you don't have to try at that. You don't have to, it doesn't take much to teach a little kid the word mine right? That comes pretty, pretty naturally to them. I thought about, thought about even like the plant world, right? What do you do in a, what do you see in a forest? You see all these plants who are just competing with one another for the resources, right? For the sun, for the rain. They're just trying to crowd out everything else because, because that's the only way they can survive, right? Think about, think about the animal ecosystems, right? You've got this idea again that the circle of life works because everything uh, benefits at the sacrifice of something else, right? That's, that's how the world works naturally. But new life that Jesus says he comes to offer means a new way of living, where we utilize our God-given ability to think and to reason, to make decisions, to live in such a way where we put the desires and the interests of others before our own, even when it costs us something. And that's the way into the kingdom, because that's what the kingdom is all about, love expressed through sacrifice. That, Jesus tells the man, is eternal living that you're looking for. The cost of living, new life. The cost of new living is sacrifice. Sacrifice on behalf of others for the sake of love. Selflessness that pure love demands of us. That's the kind of life that Jesus invites all of us to experience. Because when you love another person by sacrificing for them, you are participating in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. You are experiencing eternal life now as it is going to be lived eternally. You never look more like Jesus than you do when you sacrifice for another human being. Jesus uh, compares the, this kingdom 
to, to things like a mustard seed, things like leaven, right? Both start small and seemingly insignificant, and over time, they grow into something bigger and something more valuable. And, and for most of us, that's the same way that this new type of living is going to have to grow as well, right? It's going to have to start with something small, and it's going to have to grow into something bigger and more beautiful. Every one of us has opportunities every single day uh, to accept Jesus' invitation to love the one in front of us, like Tony said last week, right? To, to count up the cost of whatever that looks like and to make it to sacrifice on their behalf for love. And sometimes those opportunities are extraordinary, right? Sometimes, sometimes you have opportunities that lead to stories you're never going to forget. And some of the moments in my life where I feel like I was the closest to the kingdom of God are moments where I, um, you know, where I entered into the life of a stranger and, uh, and just engaged them. Now, the reality is I'm probably batting about like 2% on those opportunities, right? But sometimes those, those get you. Sometimes you have those opportunities. But most of the time, most of the time, our opportunities are found in the normal, the mundane parts of life, right? We face dozens of situations every day where we're, we have a choice of how we're going to respond to somebody. Dozens of situations where we have an opportunity to put someone, someone else's interests before our own. When we wake up in the morning, on the way to and from work, when we're in a meeting, when we're in a class, we're at lunch, um, while, you know, while you're at the dinner table while you're with your family. We have opportunities every single day, opportunities and moments to love the one in front of us. And in those decisions, the kingdom of heaven awaits us. And so as we close uh, today, I, I just, I, I want to give you one simple question. Pretty simple, nothing, nothing earth-shattering. What's one specific way that by the end of today, just today, let's start small, just like the mustard seed, just like the lemon. What's one specific way today that you will have an opportunity to, to make a sacrifice on the behalf of someone else to love them well? Small victories. Let's, let's start small. Like I said, just like the mustard seed. And let it grow. With each choice to love, let it grow in us. How can you put this idea into practice before the end of the day? And I'm, you probably don't have to think too terribly hard about it. But how can you reflect the love, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus to somebody uh, in your life today? And, and just for a second... Just for a moment, I want, you to, I want you to dream with me, right? We talked about dreaming a little bit already. We talked about our retirement dreams. We talked about the man's dream of eternal life. Let's dream just a little bit more today. What would your household look like? What would your household look like if everybody in your house was just trying to sacrifice for one another? The mothers are trying not to faint just at the very idea, right? What would your house look like if everybody was looking out for each other first? What would our marriages, what would our dating relationships look like if both parties were just intent on trying to look out for the other person first, to love well? What our friendships look like? How would, how would our work days differ if we oriented our life and our decision-making around this idea of trying to love our customers, love our coworkers well by sacrificing on their behalf? What would, how would that change our social media habits? How would it change our social media habits if we were always thinking about the other first before we thought about whatever it is that I need to say or do or respond to? How would it change our political discourse if rather than trying to be right all the time, we were focused on loving well? How would it change... (laughs) We're going to get really crazy. How would it change your Thanksgiving gathering when all the families together, your Christmas gathering, when all the families together and all that stuff just comes rushing back together if everybody was just intent on sacrificing on behalf of the other person. Isn't that, isn't that a beautiful idea? 
Isn't that a beautiful idea? And the reality is that's what the kingdom of heaven will be all about. That's what we're, that's what we're heading towards. And so why not, why not start now, right? So we have opportunities every day. We're all probably going to get an opportunity before we even get to lunch today to love somebody well, to sacrifice on behalf of another human being, and to experience the kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven today. To consider the cost of a new way of living, to pay it for the person in front of us so I can love them well, to love the one in front of me the way that Jesus has called us to. How will you have an opportunity to do that today? I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we're going to close a, sing a closing song. And I just want you in, the, in these next moments, just, just you don't have, probably don't have to think very hard. You might not even have to get to the door today before you have an opportunity to do this. But let's start small. Start small and let that grow in us, right? Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful for, uh, we're thankful for, your, for your word. Thankful for people like the rich man who came up and, and asked you what, the, what he needed to do to enter the kingdom of heaven because you had an opportunity to share something that we, thousands of years later now, are still wrestling with. Jesus, thank you for leading by example, for not inviting us into a kingdom where the king sits on high and uh, and just kind of plays with his royal subjects, but a king who led by example, a king who laid his life down, a king who showed, if you don't get what my kingdom is all about, then just watch me. And Jesus, we want that kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We want to live in the way that you have always designed us to live. We want people to know who you are because of the way that we have lived and the way that we have loved. And so I pray that you would start with each one of us individually. We got a million opportunities to be Jesus to people, and sometimes the hardest one is the one that's right in front of us right now. And so start in our homes. Start at our jobs. Start in our friendships. Start in the things that we, we know, the things that are simple, and work work the leaven through the dough in us so that that grows, so that your spirit grows that idea in our hearts and we look more and more and more like you every day. And we know that in that we get to experience what you have for us, new living, true life. And that's all we really want, Jesus. So in these closing moments, as we, as we sing to you, as we, as we pray to you, I pray that you would be working in our hearts even now. And that as we walk out the doors, all this wouldn't just disappear, but whatever it is that you're starting to do in us, that we would take that with us. And we love you, Jesus, and we thank you for not giving